lot of Republicans who had been against Trump, even in the primary and sort of even and sort of wishy-washy with him during the general, but they pretty quickly fell in line after. Hogan was always just no. Hello, I'm Jeff Cabaservice from Miniscannon Center. Welcome to the Vital Center podcast, where we try to sort through the problems of the muddled, moderate majority of Americans, drawing upon history, biography, and current events. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Malia Cromer. Uh, she is an associate professor of political science at Goucher College, where she is director of the Sarah T. Hughes Center for Politics. In that capacity, she oversees the Goucher College Poll, which measures the opinions of Maryland residents and voters on important policy, social, and economic issues. Uh, since Malia created the Goucher Poll a decade ago, it has become a highly respected survey that is cited frequently by national media outlets. Uh, in fact, it would be fair to say that the Goucher Poll is just one of a handful of high-quality polls that exist anywhere in the country which focus on state races and state issues. And over the past 10 years, uh, Malia has built a wide Twitter following and has become a go-to expert for national and state reporters, as well as a regular commentator on podcasts and public affairs programs. And she is the author of a brand new biography of Maryland's two-term former Republican governor, Larry Hogan Jr., entitled Blue State Republican, How Larry Hogan Won, Where Republicans Lose, and Lessons for a Future GOP. So congratulations, Malia, and welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm delighted to be here. And I'm so glad, to, uh, again, with the book, uh, I think your listeners should know that you are actually acknowledged as somebody who helped me out along the way in writing it. Uh, thank you very much. I, it was a pleasure to read the book in manuscript uh, a while ago, and uh, you've definitely done wonders with it even uh, since then. And I guess it's technically true that the book actually comes out tomorrow as, at the time we're speaking. But by the time the podcast comes out, the book will be out and available for purchase. Wonderful. Yep. Okay. Well, you and I met uh, the first time in the sepia-toned pre-pandemic days, which was probably about four years ago. Had you at that point decided to write about Larry Hogan yet, or was that a decision that was still in the future? Well, um, I'll put you on the timeline of the, how the book came to be. So uh, in 2014, Larry Hogan comes on the scene in Maryland. He beats Anthony Brown. It's one of the biggest upsets in the country. Nobody really expected this Republican, who not that many people had heard of, to upset a two-term lieutenant governor. So in 2015, um, he, and, uh, he assumes office. It's a pretty quiet sort of first session. At the end of the first session, we have the big Baltimore uprising. And as well as he has cancer, he, he, uh, uh, in July that year, he announces that he has cancer. Um, we check back in with him uh, in, uh, in terms of public opinion uh, poll in September, and it turns out he has a 60-plus approval rating, which is really high uh, for a Maryland Republican. And it has not dropped below 60 since. And so that became, for me, as somebody who does public opinion polling for a living, it's interesting that any governor can, can sustain those kinds of numbers, particularly a Republican governor in a state where 55% of the registered voters are Democrats. And so that you start to see the sort of foundation of the Hogan coalition forming in 2014, but really kind of coming together that during that first term. And as he's gearing up to run again uh, for, for re-election, Trump has now been elected as president. It's caused all sorts of havoc for folks like uh, Hogan who have not boarded the Trump train. And I started to look at the race and I was like, boy, this is really interesting. You know, either this Trump drag is going to wash Hogan out of office. It's not going to matter that he has a 70% approval rating 
I should really write about this. And it's, isn't it, isn't it such an interesting happenstance that this guy still has such high approvals. And so, um, I run into Hogan coming outside of WBAL radio. He and I were both doing radio hits about the sort of election. I was doing analysis of him and he was coming in sort of right after me to do his regularly scheduled WBAL hit. And I figured why not, you know, shoot my shot and say to him, governor, I would like to interview you for a book. I want to write about you. He was taken off guard did what exactly what people do to like random people who accost a public official <laughs> in a hallway. He gives he has a staffer give a business card to me and sends me on my way. And then fast forward a couple months later, you know, the whole election happens, he wins. And then folks like the Niskanen Center start to pay a little bit of attention to Larry Hogan. And you invited him to uh, starting over. I think the center right after Trump oh. was the event you invited him to. I ran that conference and I don't even remember the title of it. So I'm very impressed yeah. that you remember that. <laughs> I, I Yes. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to go down and I'm going to go to this conference and I'm going to, I, you was free. So I appreciate that in a scan and center. <laughs> You're welcome. I, I took the train down and I was, you know, it was, was pretty exciting. Uh, I was got to see people that I had only read about. Like I saw Bill Crystal was there. So that was an excitement for me. I was like, oh, wow, I see him all the time in the news. And so I listened to Hogan give his speech. It sounded very familiar to me. I've heard the speech a million times uh, about sort of moderation and building a coalition. And that's why I decided that when I decided, I was like, I'm going to reach out to these folks. Like, the people in the Scannon Center seem to get what Hogan's trying to do here. And that's how you and I met. And then it was, and I, you were gracious and allowed me to come down to the Scannon Center and sit in some of the meetings of the concerned. I did all that, got to know some folks. And that's how I was able to at least get a grasp on where at least folks in your orbit wanted to see the direction of the Republican Party. And I'm so sorry that was so long-winded, but that's how the book sort of came to be. No, that's <laughs> terrific. Um, and you were very helpful to us early on uh, in our relationship with Larry Hogan because you understood Maryland politics in a way that we really didn't. But it's true that, you know, the Niskanen Center, which generally is sympathetic toward politicians from the center-right, whatever that means, saw Hogan as somebody who could make it work in a sense because he was among the most popular governors in the entire country. Um, and somebody who seemed to actually have a coherent governing program, which, again, a lot of Republicans did not. And I particularly remember, well, going to lunch with him on one occasion in the governor's house in Annapolis, which was uh, quite interesting. He was a very reserved guy in person in that setting in comparison to his more extroverted public persona. But then also I found it very interesting that uh, I attended his second inaugural ball, which was at National Harbor. Uh, just across the Potomac from Alexandria, Virginia. And he stood there on stage with his purple surfboard, which he, you know, was his prop to show that he was surfing the blue wave as a Republican. But what was fascinating was that on stage was his South Korean-born wife, uh, Yumi, their uh, Asian-American daughters, and Boyd Rutherford, his running mate, uh, who's African-American, and his family. And it was probably the most diverse group of people on any Republican stage in that entire evening anywhere in the country. Um, and that was also something that was interesting about Larry Hogan. But before we talk about Larry Hogan, uh, let's talk about you. Okay. <laughs> it's always stuck with me that you grew up in Homer City, Pennsylvania, which is about 50 miles east of Pittsburgh and has a population of less than 2,000 people. Uh, what was it like to grow up there? Um. I am the biggest supporter of my hometown ever. It was lovely to grow up there. I'm a huge proponent of small towns. Um, it was a, a place where 
Uh, I knew every single kid in my graduating class. There was only 80 of us. Uh, It's the sort of like Friday night lights, football game kind of vibe to it. You know, had a a main street with a pharmacy. So yeah, um, it was wonderful like that. Now it has experienced that political change that a lot of, that we saw in 2016. So Homer City, Pennsylvania, the shadow of the coal mines, there was a, a uh, Lose Our Minds is right next to my sort of hometown. My uh, my grandfather lived in Grayson, Pennsylvania, which was home to some Coke ovens um, and a lot, brought a lot of immigrants from Eastern Europe, mostly Eastern European, lots of Catholics, lots of union. Uh, so for years and years and years, Indiana County, and particularly where I lived in Indiana County, was a solidly sort of blue collar Democratic area. And then much like we saw in a lot of other working class, predominantly white areas, you saw the shift that Trump really, I think, accelerated a pattern that was already happening before he came on the scene. And so that's like in terms of the politics of my 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 hometown is, you know, we were, you know, union sort of blue collar Democrats. But my town where I grew up is very, very, I think, representative of the changes we've seen in blue collar areas throughout the country. To the extent that there's any national cultural awareness of the place where you grew up, it probably comes through the Bill Murray firm, film uh, Groundhog Day, which is about uh, <laughs> Punxsutawney Phil, the groundhog, and the hometown. Uh, did, did Polka feature prominently in the festive social occasions in Homer City? You better believe it. Um, you can't <laughs> go to a wedding without there being Polka and a fire hall after party. And that's one of the reasons I absolutely love Homer City, Pennsylvania so much. Yeah, so my both my grandparents uh, were able to polka with the best of them. We had family who's, who could play the accordion. It was it, it's a lovely place to be. Um, I think the things I miss most about my grandparents, um, besides my grandfather, was a huge like uh, loved watching. He loved watching the news as much as he loved going to mass. I miss the sort of the the ethnic food you know uh, that we used to eat all the time for like Christmas and. Uh, uh, Christmas Eve dinner, like the holushki and the holupki and all the pierogies and that, that kind of the Slovakian meals. I miss that terribly about my grandparents. You know, Pittsburgh uh, is a city that's reinvented itself through Eds and Meds, where once there used to be the U.S. Steel headquarters, there's now uh, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Has your area in Indiana County suffered some of the economic downturn that a lot of rural areas and post-industrial towns have suffered in America? Not as bad as um, as some areas have. And I think that's because uh, in Indiana County, Pennsylvania, there's an anchor institution where I actually went to undergrad, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And I think if you look at sort of the, the towns that survive and thrive um, in places that have really suffered the gutting of blue collar jobs, places with ha- that had like an anchor institution like that seem to do better. And we've been lucky enough, I think, to survive because of the fact that the college is there. And not only that, we have a nice um, Indiana Regional Medical Center as a big employer. There, there's enough other to sur- sort of surround and cushion the area. We're rural Pennsylvania, but we are not isolated rural Pennsylvania. It's very easy to get on a, a highway to get to Pittsburgh. A lot There are people who live in my hometown who do that. I think that would be a horrible commute, but people do it, that you can drive into Pittsburgh. So rural, but not isolated. And so I think that has really helped even though when still left or the coal, it's not the when the coal mines really dried up and left, that did cause some economic problems. Fracking, on the other hand, and I know that's very controversial, particularly among my Democratic friends, there's a lot of fracking and natural gas jobs that are available in that general region. I suppose I should add for uh, confused listeners that 
Pennsylvania, like New York State, has a lot of towns that are named for states. Like if you drive through New York, you can come through Alabama, Delaware, Maryland, Wyoming, Florida, name it. So Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which is your uh, undergraduate alma mater, has nothing to do with Indiana, the state. No. And there's a California University of Pennsylvania as well. <laughs> and so it's, yes, exactly. I don't, I, yeah. <laughs> What's it's a it? great place. I have nothing but love, again, I have nothing but love from my alma mater. I, I was the first person in my co- my family to go to college. Uh, so as a first-generation college student, it gave me the opportunity to eventually go on and get a PhD at Louisiana State. Uh, so I'm, it's these regional state universities, I think, are just really, really important for giving kids like me um, a chance uh, to do something different and end up writing a book about a Republican governor on down the line. <laughs> That's great. What did you study at uh, IU of P? <laughs> I, was a, um, I was an economics major. And so I had these plans. I, I mean, I loved college so much. So I, my first semester of college, I took a um, an econ 121. I think it was like intro to macro. And I was like, this is great. This, this is wonderful. I can't believe all the things I'm learning. And I was convinced that I was going to be an economist because I had a professor that I just absolutely, his name is Robert Stonebreaker. Uh, he was a professor of economics. Uh, he was a Princeton PhD. So I was just really like enamored with him. And I just thought he was so smart. I wanted to be like him when I grew up. And it turns out I'm not good enough at math to be good at, to be an economist. So you have to be exceptional at math to be, you have to be able to use math as a tool and math cannot be a hindrance. If you want to be an economist for me, it was always the hindrance. Like I understood the theories, I understood the concepts, but I could never quite get over the, the uh, linear algebra or the differential equations lit, leap that you had to be able to do. I was good at statistics though. And I ended up taking some political science classes because I liked politics, because my grandfather was into politics, because we always talked about politics at home. And my advisor, Dr. Sternberger, said to me, you might want to consider going and getting a PhD in political science or public doing public policy. It is, Matt, you still can use the quantitative reasoning that you're good at, but it doesn't require this high level mathematics that is stopping you from being great at it. And that's what I ended up doing. I applied broadly. Um, I ended up going to, I got accepted to Louisiana State. They gave me a stipend and I love warm weather. So down <laughs> I went. I loved it down. I loved it there. That's great. And in Baton Rouge, what was your particular area of focus? Um, so, uh, you know, initially I went down to Louisiana State and I thought, I'm going to study Congress. That is what I'm going to do. And I think in political science, we refer to the folks, and this is, I don't know if this uh, as Congress jocks, because they were the people who really want to do like the formal modeling and like the high level sort of mathematics mixed with political science. I just wasn't into it. Like I, I took one course on Congress and I was like, ah, oh, this isn't, this is not where it's at for me. Then the next semester I took the seminar on state politics and I was like, this is where it's at. This is where all the action happens. This is so interesting. I love the, the fact that you could compare and contrast between the states. And I just really liked the fact that how close state governments were to the people it just didn't feel removed. It was like, these are like random people that you could see at on the weekend and they were part-time, they were working this job part-time and then showing up to the local fair and shaking hands and fixing roads and high, like fixing potholes and doing these types of things. And I just fell in love with it. And I also got a job at the survey center and the survey center, the Louisiana state's uh, public policy research lab conducted the Louisiana survey. And it was to me every all the math that I learned and liked, that's what polling was in practice. 
And I loved it. And you got to ask people what they thought about government. And I believe strongly that government needs to reflect the will of the people. And I, so to me, this was like a natural fit. And state politics plus polling is how I ended up at LSU's Public Policy Research Lab, then to Elon University at my first job where we did North Carolina politics through the North Carolina poll. And then in 2012, I was lucky enough to get the job to start um, Goucher's poll. And we did or all Maryland politics all the time. You know, it seems that um, quite a few of the country's top polls are based at relatively small colleges and universities like Elon, Goucher, Quinnipiac, Marist. Why is that? Well, I think one, I think because we're private, I think that actually helps because nobody really likes to be asking for public money. I think at the same time that you are putting out a poll on the governor and the legislature and some of the public policies. I don't, I don't know if that's for sure, but I, that's my inclination that they, like, I wonder if that's one of the reasons. I would say that um, it's oftentimes a strategic investment by colleges that, um, you know, big schools, you know, your Ivy Leagues and some of the big SEC schools, the big ACC schools that have big, huge sports programs, like it's easy for them to get in the news, you know, medical breakthrough or championship team. But like, how does a school like like Goucher College get in the news on a regular basis? Like, how do we get promote all the great things we're doing? Like, how can we get a little shine? And doing a public opinion polling center is if you can do it right. Now you have to be able to do it accurately and, you know, and with, uh, with somebody who actually has the background to talk about the numbers appropriately. But if you can do it right, you can contribute to public discourse in the state. And that's what we've done. It got, that's what we did at Elon University. I had a fantastic mentor there. His name was Hunter Bacot. He ran the Elon University poll. I was his assistant director he was super media savvy, and he was really great at trying to craft survey instruments that allowed everyday North Carolinians to weigh in on government. And that's the sort of lessons I learned there. And I took them to, with me to Maryland. And a lot of schools do this. Like so the schools with small, like small schools with like really well-known public opinion uh, firms are great at asking questions that are sort of compelling, either locally or on the national stage. And they're really great at putting out methodologically rigorous um, numbers that aren't influenced by interest groups or where they, um, or, or funding sources or anything like that. So let's uh, let's go back to Larry Hogan then. So he's he's born in 1956, and he's actually a second generation Maryland politician because his father, Larry Hogan Sr., was uh, a member of the House of Representatives, and probably gained most national notoriety by being the first Republican on the House Judiciary Committee to vote for Richard Nixon's impeachment. Larry Hogan's father paid a political price for going up against the leader of his party because when he ran for governor in 1974, he lost in the primary on the Republican side. And this was because many Republican voters felt that he had been disloyal to Nixon, who was a man to whom he should have pledged his absolute fealty. That's right. And so, um, and Hogan talks about this a lot. So the governor, and I think it certainly rang true for him um, in 2016, where everybody was pledging fealty to Donald Trump after he won unexpectedly and bested Hillary Clinton. But a lot of Republicans who had been against Trump, even in the primary and sort of even and sort of wishy-washy with him during the general, that they pretty quickly fell in line after. Hogan was always just no. He was always hands off. He never, uh, he went to the Trump inauguration uh, and, you know, tw uh, I think issued a really sort of bland, statement of, I look forward to working, working with this administration just like the last one, something like something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing there. But his father's influence is very, I think, important. 
um, because of the idea of political courage and his father, his father's ability to have that, that kind of really big historical moment of courage to stand up and say what Nixon did was wrong. And not only is it wrong, it's impeachable and it costing him so much. I, I think that Hogan, I think really identified with a big part of that story after Trump has, you know, becomes president of the United States. I'll say that on the Democratic side, now the, the criticism from Maryland Democrats is that Hogan was never critical enough. He um, was critical, light, and he avoided, for the most part, dealing with Trump. So he would ignore Trump rather than actually deal with it. And that his criticisms never rose to the occasion. And I think that that's just a matter of perspective, who you think is right. Uh, if you think that Larry Hogan, it was enough that he was a Republican and criticized the leader of his party, or if you think at this point in American history that he should have been as critical as his Democratic, um, the Democrats in, in Maryland were at the time. That's, I think, again, that's not the perception. So Larry Hogan Jr. does not work his way up the political ladder. He's a developer for most of his early career. But then in 2011, he starts an organization with another co-founder called Change Maryland, which is a response to the taxations that Democratic Governor Martin O'Malley had levied in the wake of the 2008 Great Recession. That's right. And I think what, where Change Maryland is interesting is not just because it becomes this finally a Republican oppositional voice that's actually starting to kind of catch on and like be able to needle the O'Malley administration. Um, because again, like Martin O'Malley was certainly a rising star in the Democratic Party. I, I know that a lot of people point to 2016 and his inability to really make any traction in the um, the Democratic primary. But in Maryland, he was for a better part of a decade was a rock star. Uh, he was like the main event. Anyway, he'd been their mayor of Baltimore before he became governor. He was mayor of Baltimore. He was a young mayor of Baltimore. Uh, he introduced things like city stat and he was looking as a ref, somebody who was um, on the vanguard of reform for the city. And he's a really charismatic guy too. So Hogan had found a way to finally needle the guy through change Maryland. And where it becomes interesting is in the larger picture of Republican party politics nationally at that time. So that is 2011 is right after that big 2010 Tea Party year. And that's when you see a lot of Republicans start to double down on some of the nativist language. Um, Tea Party claimed to be, for the most part, about tax issues. But really, there is, I mean, a lot of research since then have really shown that that is not actually what a lot of the messaging was about. Hogan was explicit in this when I, and I interviewed, when I interviewed him for the book, I asked him, I was like, so where is the, where does change Maryland fit in with the tea party? He was like, it doesn't like, it does not fit in. We just weren't anything like that. I was interested in building a tent. Like I was interested in building a big tent. I was not interested in firing up the base. I was interested in reaching a diverse set of voters with an economic message that Marylanders have paid way too much in taxes um, and we needed to, to, to rein in the spending um, and a really just a fiscally conservative message, but done in a way that was broadly appealing. And that becomes his bread and butter. That is the messaging that helped him win in 2014. Uh, and it helped him win again in 2018 and helped him build a, a, because people can rally behind that. People rally behind the idea of smaller government, reduced taxes and regulations, they like that. Like, uh, I think Mar Americans and Marylanders, I mean, this is a largely center-right country in terms of a lot of fiscal policies. And, you know, you quoted Hogan at one point as saying the Republican Party should be unabashedly pro-business. Yes. And to me, you know, 
Change Maryland and his subsequent approach to governing really is rooted more in the traditional conception of the Republican Party as a pro-business party. And yes, lowering taxes from what is perceived to be an excessive level is part of that. But the business community actually requires a lot of other things that aren't all about small government, so to speak. Generally speaking, they tend to support infrastructure improvements, better schools, a lot of things of that sort. So that is probably the biggest criticism of the Hogan years, particularly from Democrats. So um, Maryland, the Baltimore region was ready for the red line. They had they went through a bunch of bidding processes. They had received um, a guarantee of a, a large sum of federal money to start to build this project, uh, this east to west rail line um, in Baltimore. Hogan nixes it like the fir- like w- within the first year of office. It is something that he's still criticized for this day. And how you view it really depends, I think, on whether you are somebody who is a proponent of public transportation or if you're somebody who wants to see more investment in roads and highways. And Hogan has invested in roads and highways. He's always been a roads and highways governor. And so you're right. We talk about like part of the open for business sort of mantra that he really tried to lean into was about building up not so much with the urban center of Baltimore with public transportation, but more so with trying to reinvest and reallocate that money to, to bolster other parts of the state. I think it's worth pointing out that one of Hogan's early allies as he's running for governor for the first time in 2014 is Chris Christie, the Republican governor of New Jersey, who I think at that time was also head of the Republican Governors Association. And Chris Christie likewise had vetoed a big tunnel project in the belief that tunnel projects are what Hogan called uh, boondoggles. Um, They're just too expensive for what they get you. And they could look to the example of the big dig in Boston um, as a project that just went billions of dollars over its initial cost estimates. And that is what Hogan will tell you. If you ask him about the red line, that is that exactly what he will say. And, and I don't want to say this, like the folks that I talked to as well for the books, that some of the uh, journalists who had covered it quite extensively, a key criticism of Hogan he does level at uh, is that the governor really never followed up with, uh, I think, a, a good enough, a solid enough explanation of why he thought it was going to be a wasteful boondoggle. So why why the tunnel was going to be so problematic? Why the plans as is was expect would be expected to run so far outside of the budget? But again, if you are a Marylander and you were sitting in Howard County, if you were sitting in the western part of the state or on the eastern shore, you were going to see a reinvestment in some of the highway systems. And Maryland, and again, if you are commuting every day and you are not interested in taking public transportation, that is the has always been the dividing line with what if you ask folks on a poll. Whether you want to invest in roads and highways or more money for public transportation, it's always the, the question about whether how you commute to work is really what determines what you think about you know, how you're going to answer that question. And that being said, he also, um, with the purple line that goes into Washington, D.C., he also, but he did green like that. So there is a little bit of a mixed, and he campaigned against it, but he ended up green lighting it. Um, and it's still in process right now. Mm-hmm. being built. Some, there's some delays. It's, you know. Yeah. So, you know, a large part of Hogan's campaign during 2014 was that O'Malley had levied 40 different or taxes or fees in the years after the Great Recession, of which the most famous was the so-called rain tax. The stormwater remediation fee um, got a really great glow up in being called the rain tax. Um, it was a fee uh, that really um, that that was levied on any sort of impervious surfaces. So if you were a business or you had a big driveway, 
um, you had to pay a fee for all that stormwater runoff because, I mean, it was polluting the Chesapeake Bay. So all the concrete and asphalt and all that stuff, when rain hits it and it runs over it, it does eventually get down into the, the watershed and eventually gets out to the, the bay and into our um, And it's a problem for the environment. Environmentalists have been talking about it for years. It by itself, it would have never caught fire by itself. The problem was the other part of Hogan's messaging was they never met a tax they didn't like or one they didn't hike. And they and they documented the 40 tax hikes, the 40 tax hikes. And so the rain tax sounds really ridiculous in the context of the other 40. So in it by itself, it's 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 one thing, but it's the rain tax as like a really easy moniker for people to remember, plus the other 40 tax hikes and those types of things, it become, becomes like this messaging magic that Anthony Brown's campaign just, I think, never took him seriously, or the, the Anthony Brown and the Democrats that in 2014 just never took it seriously enough. They never, they, and, and I, and this is probably where I differ from a lot of my Democratic friends, is that I also think that they spent way too much time pointing at everything that Anthony Brown did wrong and not accepting all the things that Larry Hogan did right. What were some of those things that Hogan did right, in your view? The, uh, focusing on these economic issues, so, uh, like a laser on the economic issues and not allowing himself to be knocked off message by social issues that lose Democratic votes. There was two instances uh, that the Brown campaign tried to make social issues a forefront of that campaign. One was on abortion rights uh, and the second was on guns. The abortion, uh, the issue with abortion rights is they found Larry Hogan's statements from they were like 20 something years old. Um, abortion at that point in time, I know that things are a little bit different now with the overturning of, Wade, of Roe versus Wade, but it's settled law in Maryland. And so things weren't going to change if Hogan became, was elected. He was not going to change abortion laws. And he was really clear about that. So they forced him to talk about it. And his response always was, I'm not going to change abortion laws in the state. You don't want to talk about economic issues, though. So that was always, was always I won't do it. And then economic issues. The same thing with guns. Um, Hogan was against O'Malley's, uh, the large package of gun reform or gun control legislation that he pushed through. Hogan was on record as being against it. But again, with the same line, I'm not going to do anything to really try to change gun laws in the state, but my opponent won't talk about economic issues. And that I think um, the disciplined messaging over and over and over again and his refusal to have a debate about guns, to have a debate about reproductive rights, and to change the context of the debate back to economic issues was incredibly effective in 2014. And he used that same line all the way to 2018 as well. I suppose with the benefit of hindsight, it's worth asking why with his refusal to engage in culture war issues, with his relative moderation on these other issues of abortion and guns, he got through the Republican primary in the first place. I will say this, uh, the Republican Party in Maryland does not have a deep bench of talent. Uh, he was one, easily the most talented politician of that group uh, in 2014 that ran. He was also the best funded of that group. So Change Maryland quickly turned, and I think this is the interesting story of Change Maryland, the evolution of it was it starts with this sort of Facebook group that puts out these like anti-O'Malley, anti-tax messages. Pretty soon it starts to carry the authority line. Uh, for Hogan for governor. And he's, you know, builds up this reach. He's able to use Change Maryland as a platform 
Nobody wants to hear about from the guy from Hogan Companies. Nobody cares what that guy says. People do want to hear what a tax advocacy group has to say about the tax policies of the maladministration. And so he became um, somebody who was on WBAL. He was um, he got a couple of Fox business hits. He wrote some op-eds. So he became very quickly, he used that platform to become the sort of front runner. And when anybody questioned whether he was a front runner, he just was like, I'm not going to engage with the rest of my Republican opponents. I'm the only one who can beat the, the Democrat. Don't you guys want to get rid of the second term of O'Malley? That was the kind of message. And that was um, one that Republicans, at least at that time, were receptive to. That's right. So, that's so right. Hogan wins this big upset. And then in fairly quick succession, two big events. First of all, the, the Freddie Gray riots in Baltimore yes. that you referred to in April of 2015, which Hogan seems to handle effectively. He does. And when I say that, I think that it's important to note that it's not just Hogan. And so he, he takes a lot of credit for it. And I think that as, as any governor would, he takes a great deal of credit. What re, I think a, a larger part of the story, the story of the Baltimore uprising um, is how immediately community leaders and organizers came through when the violence started. They were the ones who are the initial sort of first line calming the streets really isolating the violence that happened to just that first night. I think anybody outside of Maryland or outside of Baltimore City's media market, all you guys saw was the burning of the CVS on one loop over and over and over again. It wasn't as if the whole city was on fire. It was the largest riots that we've had since the 1960s. Uh, it's not, I'm not, I'm not diminishing the issue, but what I'm saying is that it's not as if he sent the National Guard in and they sort of like, I could stomp down the the the, the 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 folks rioting. What Hogan did um, is he, I think he carefully uh, deployed the National Guard in a way that maintained peace. And I think to his credit, and as well as to cr the credit of the folks that he had put in charge, they were, they, they, the National Guard was, was restrained in Maryland, in Baltimore, and they didn't, there was no sort of other big instances of violence that's, that further escalated the situation. And so I think, but as you, if you're a governor, I think as a governor during your first few months of the election, that has to be, I mean, that's a, a big inflection point for you. A, mis a mistake could have very easily been made. He could have been too heavy handed. And there was of course the dynamic, I think, of he's a white Republican governor of a, uh, trying to send troops into a majority black city. What I'm struck by actually though, is the historical context. Because after all, one of the other Republican governors of Maryland was Spiro Agnew. Yes. And in 1968, there was a riot in Baltimore in the wake of Martin Luther King's assassination. And Spiro Agnew called together about 100 mostly black community leaders who had been doing the same kind of job of trying to isolate and quell mm -hmm. the looting and the rioting. And Spiro Agnew saw this as an opportunity to raise his national profile as a populist by dressing down these community leaders uh, and claiming that they were siding with the rioters and that they were against the police and that they ran from law and order. Um, and it was disgraceful, but it worked. That was what got him named Richard Nixon's vice president. Whereas Hogan in the same situation understands that these are the people who are keeping the peace. He holds his tongue at the very least and helps out where he can. I think that that's a real, yes. And I, that they took very, very different approaches. Um, uh, Hogan did take the time to meet with a lot of community leaders during this time. And, you know, and I talk about like a lot in the book about the, the, the message discipline that is 
becomes the hallmark, I think, of Hogan's communication style. It shows up almost immediately during the the Baltimore uprising uh, that the things he says about Stephanie Rawlings Blake, although they are unkind in his book, his book, he's a little bit harsher in his his own recounting, um, still standing. That's his biography. He's a little, he's not as judicious um, as he was at in the moment. And there was some tense, there were some tense moments between him and uh, former mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake during that time. For the most part, he presented a really sort of cautious, you know, we want to calm the streets. We want to make sure everybody's safe. We want to stop the violence. We want to stop the destruction. And there wasn't a lot of finger pointing. There was a lot of like the task at, at hand is like, let's make sure this doesn't, this, this ends. We need to make this sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, we need the violence to stop now. And he is just very careful. And I think that he's cognizant of, you know, of the optics in, in, in some ways of, you know, he's a white Republican governor. This is a majority black city and you're sitting in the National Guard. And the, I would say that the good thing is that things never they didn't get out of hand. Like, the again, the National Guard, uh, Major General Lisa Singh or Linda Singh, excuse me, uh, did an excellent job. I, I spoke to a reverend, Elvin Hathaway, for my book. Uh, he's a, a, a big player um, in Baltimore City as a faith leader, as a community leader. He's really well respected. That was his his take was Major General saying um, was uh, led the led the National Guard in a way that just was re- was there as a, was a really restrained force, but a force that helped maintain the uh, the peace. And you do refer to Hogan's not just acquaintanceship, but actual working relationship and friendship with community figures like uh, Arthur Squeaky Kirk yes. uh, in West Baltimore. And, and you know it's interesting. Washington, D.C. has some similarities to Baltimore. I live uh, in a historically black neighborhood, uh, although it's now gentrifying to some extent. But, you know, every block will have kind of the block mayor, uh, an established mm-hmm. figure who's been there a long time, who knows who everyone is, um, who has a lot of respect uh, from the community. And I live right across from the mayor of my block. Uh, and every block in Baltimore generally has one, too. But the Democratic establishment in Baltimore is increasingly losing touch with those figures. And weirdly, it seemed like Hogan did a better job of connecting with a lot of the local leadership than the Democratic Party did in that era. Perhaps. I mean, I would say this, and I don't want to discount a lot of these the Democratic elected officials who during that time were really a visible presence. So when I say that they were community leaders, but a lot of the Black elected officials during the Baltimore uprising were there meeting with people and they were there the next day to help clean up. And so I, I, mean, I don't want to take anything away from them, uh, but I will say that Hogan, uh, again, the careful messaging and not, uh, and being able, I think uh, decisively or deploying the national guard, I think was a necessary, a, a necessary step and a, a step that was basically lauded by um, most people. There were some uh, detractors who really resented the, uh, him sending a militarized force into a city that's been plagued by police brutality. But I think in general, it does speak uh, that Hogan did um, unlike um, Agnew, he wasn't there to antagonize people, particularly community leaders. Uh, and he spent a lot of time for the next the the ten days following the most violent part of the uprising. Um, he spent some time walking through the uh, through Baltimore City, talking to community leaders, talking to everyday residents. You know, I think uh, you can cynically look at that as just playing politics, and I think that that's I mean that's certainly one interpretation of it. But for everyday sort of voters who live in the state, like the city, to see their governor actually coming in and engaging in their communities, uh, people do remember that, that, that kind of thing. You know, one of the things that also benefited Hogan 
in a weird way uh, in his first term was the fact that he was diagnosed with cancer. Um, his very visible struggle with chemotherapy humanized him on some level. I think so. And so, but I, but I think I try to argue um, in the book that a lot of people, and I still hear this now, and I, it's one of these things that sort of drives me crazy that he's only popular because of the cancer. Like I've heard that from so many people and I just, I think that it did humanize him. And I think that his handling of the cancer was something that a lot of folks could relate to. Uh, you know, anytime, like like the rest of us who have to make a living, who have to go to work. And I, I know a lot of people who are going through rounds of chemotherapy and they have to go to work, you know, the next day. They take, you know, they use their sick days and have to go in. So that's what ho- people saw Hogan do. They saw him very sick. He lost all of his hair. Didn't look, I mean, physically weathered from it, um, but he was still sort of present and doing the job and not hiding behind spokespeople and actually engaging. So people, I think, really appreciate that about him, but it is incorrect. And I would argue that it is incorrect to say um, that that was anything more than maybe like a, um, a temporary boost in his name recognition. People forget <laughs> and people don't, people don't, like people have sympathy for you for to an extent, but then they move on to what's going on in their lives. So yeah, do I think, I think certainly the cancer probably bumped up his name recognition and gave some sympathy and, and, and uh, initially certainly helped humanize him. He wasn't, he used, uh, he mentioned uh, that he's a cancer survivor in some of his 2018 ads. I mean, think, I think to remind people, human, like, it helped humanize him to people. I'm not saying that that's not something that's happening. I'm saying that it's not just the cancer. It's just not, not the case. There is the other, there's many other things I think that factor into Hogan's um, success with the public. You know, but you do devote a lot of space in your book to Hogan's relationship, particularly with black voters. Yeah. Uh, because as you say, it's extremely unusual to get the kind of support from black voters that Hogan received. Particularly, I think, uh, in his 2018 election, you point out that he got 28% as a Republican candidate, whereas nationally, Republican governors got 12% from Black voters, and Republican senatorial candidates only got 7%. Um, and of course, you know, the Republican Party's long and troubled history with Black voters goes all the way back to 1964, when the party's nominee was Barry Goldwater, who voted against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So what accounted, in your view, for Hogan's surprising success among black voters for a Republican? Well, listen, I think first and foremost, the focus on economic issues. Black Marylanders, just like every other, uh, all other Marylanders, really do care about pocketbook issues um, at the end of the day. Um, they're not as progressive. Uh, black voters are not as progressive as their white Democratic counterparts. And we asked, we've asked this on our poll a bunch of times. A large percentage of, um, of black voters in Maryland, um, as well as nationwide, are moderates. And so I think that there's some ideological cohesion between sort of Hogan and perhaps somebody like Ben Jealous, um, who was African, who is African-American, but staunchly progressive. I think that a lot of black voters really did not like Donald Trump. Uh, Matt, they, they were among, uh, we look at our polling, black voters typically were the ones who gave him the lowest approval ratings. And they saw Hogan as a figure of a Republican who was pushing back against Donald Trump. And they liked it. And they and they rewarded for him. They, they they viewed Hogan as a moderate. So if you ask voters if they if you thought Hogan was a moderate, a liberal, or a conservative, a lot of black voters viewed Hogan as a moderate and viewed themselves as a moderate. So there was that kind of ideological cohesion. 
And also, uh, Larry Hogan uh, had a, uh, a really great lieutenant governor in Boyd Rutherford. Uh, he's an African-American, uh, a man who served in both George W. Bush's administration, um, as well as for, uh, with former Governor Ehrlich. He is, I think, a, a, an understated and important figure in the Hogan years. Just to speak to the question of uh, Black moderation, I was interested that you ran a poll in September 2018 in which you found that 63% of Black Marylanders thought their taxes were too high versus only 51% of whites. And blacks were actually less likely than white voters to say that they trusted government to spend their tax dollars wisely. Right. There's a, there's a, there was a huge anti-tax sentiment among black voters um, in Maryland. Um, I did this, uh, one of the people I interviewed, it was former Prince George's County executive, Rashern Baker. And again, as you noted, Prince George's County is one of the most affluent majority uh, black counties in the entire country. And I asked him about that. And I asked him, I was like, so what do you think about, like, what about Hogan's message resonated? And Rashard was really clear when I talked to him. Uh, the former county executive said that black voters in Prince George's County are concerned that you're going to raise their property taxes. That's what draw, like, they are concerned about it all the time. They are interested in all these other like, other issues. They want to see education improve. They want to see public safety improve their communities. They want to see better city services. They want all these things. But they are concerned at the core for their property taxes being hiked. And so somebody like Hogan, who comes across as a moderate, and is coming to them with a message like, I'm not going to raise your taxes. And after four years of not raising their taxes, they like that message. Ben Jealous was never able to explain to voters how his progressive policies were going to translate into how to actually pay for them. And Hogan's campaign needled them ex- uh, excessively on that issue, like too extreme for Maryland. You know, reckless, hey, big spender, reckless spending over and over and over again. And people heard that. Black voters heard that. And they rewarded Hogan for it. But you can't underestimate, uh, I think, the role that Boyd Rutherford played. This is true. Uh, At the same time, it is remarkable that a Republican candidate can defeat a former president of the NAACP with almost a third of the black vote. And, you know, I mentioned that Hogan in person when I met him, very serious, professional, reserved. Um, But I also saw him at some kind of campaign event at Camden Yards, where he was in a largely black crowd, there was a lot of beer in the air, and he's this kind of sweaty fireplug of a guy just pressing the flesh in a really physical, intimate way with a largely black crowd. And it was hard to picture a lot of other Republican politicians going into that crowd with that kind of gusto. And I think that kind of conveyed an authenticity that might have appealed to a black audience. Yeah, there was um, so one of the other uh, black elected officials I um, I interviewed, and this was somebody who was certainly not ideologically aligned with Hogan. She was a big jealous supporter. This is State Senator Joe Carter. She's an institution in Baltimore City. She comes from a huge, a long line of civil rights leaders. Joe Carter basically said that Larry Hogan had the ability to not come off as uncomfortable around among black people around black people that a lot, a lot, a lot of white pit politicians that she knows cannot do that, that there's like a, you could just tell there's like a level of discomfort and that Hogan had the a sort of ability to come off. Like he was some regular guy who made $50,000 a year. That was her quote. I thought it was really smart and funny, um, but it's true. So Hogan's a millionaire. I know he's a uh, Hogan companies is uh, he talks about a small business, but I mean, I guess small business is in the, is in the eye of the beholder. What you have to <laughs> is a small business. Hogan Companies is not a small business. They've done two billion dollars worth of business. Yeah, it's um, it is a it's 
it's, I would not call it a small business. Um, I would call like the little, uh, the dry cleaner at the end of my block, a small business, but it's in the eye of the beholder. But I guess in comparison to Amazon, it is a small business. I, I think that that's a really good point that Jill Carter brought up. And it's like, and, and you saw firsthand is that there is uh, a, uh, a retail politics sort of acumen that, that Hogan has. And that helped him tremendously. And his campaign, and when I interviewed like a lot of the folks from the campaign, they basically had the opinion that we were not going to just campaign in areas where Republicans typically, quote unquote, would have a, a chance of winning. So the whiter parts of Baltimore County, the whiter parts, uh, the whiter parts of Howard County, that they were going to chip in to uh, chip in um, to Dallas's margins everywhere they could. They're going to chip in. They, they knew they weren't going to win Prince George's, but they were going to chip in and they were going to do the same thing to ba- in Baltimore City. And that strategy, once you start to piece it together, that's how you shake out a double digit victory. You get it by not just winning white Democrats, you get it by winning 28% of the African-American vote in the state. So toward the end of your book, uh, you do sort of take the formula for building a Hogan coalition if you're a Republican. How do you actually win uh, a majoritarian victory to diversifying America? You you point out a number of uh, factors Uh, at the state level. You stick to your pocketbook issues, you avoid culture wars, you come across as an independent voice willing to buck your party and to work with the opposition, at least on select issues. Uh, You have your core principles, but you're flexible on policy solutions. Um, You're guided by your average voter, not the fringe. And you try to persuade all voters of your fitness to be their governor. You campaign in every community. You don't leave anybody out Mm -hmm. because they're unlikely to vote for you. And then you also surround yourself with professionals as opposed to ideological Kool-Aid drinkers. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And listen, uh, and I, I think maybe that's a part of the book that I wish I would have had time or I wish I would have leaned into more is talking more about the staffers that surrounded Hogan, because I think that there's such a huge part of the story. Hogan is only good as the staff that has surrounded him. Uh, he is a pugnacious guy by nature. The key is somebody I think that has a natural inclination who would like to hit back, who would like to, you know, to, to get into a little bit of a political back and forth. But his staff has helped him maintain that message discipline that has allowed him to look like the grown-up in the room, especially as a contrast to, to uh, Donald Trump. Um, go ahead. You also mentioned that Hogan actually is very prickly with the press, um, and yet he and the people around him don't do the stupid thing to which would be to freeze out the press or ban a particular reporter from uh, any kind of interactions. So that was one of the biggest moments of the Ehrlich administration when you knew things weren't going to go well, um, as he ends up banning uh, two Baltimore Sun reporters for what he deemed to be unfavorable coverage. Now, again, I think that uh, some Republicans would argue that it was unfavorable coverage, that it was sort of hack journalism and they, and and they didn't, and all that. It doesn't matter. It, the Baltimore Sun was the biggest player at that time. The, the Sun and the Post um, had the largest state house press corps at the time. And you can't ban the Baltimore Sun from covering your administration. You just can't do it. And it made Ehrlich, I think, look petty to the Democratic voters in which he would have had to win to win a second term. Hogan's prickly uh, with the press. Like uh, he cannot... Uh, it, it, the, he can be backslappy and gregarious and friendly, but he also can decide um, that he's not going to be on go, go on the show. He's going to go into a more friendly, a more friendly uh, radio program. 
So he can't, uh, it's, it's not as if he's, uh, I think Josh Kurtz is uh, uh, the, found, the founding editor of Maryland Matters. It's just a fantastic website, really wonky, insidery take of Maryland politics. You know, I think he says like, he's not at all like Mr. Open to the press and he's not, but I think that his communications team are effective and good at what they do. They're, they're well-prepared that they, they make sure the governor is well-prepared that there has been very few times where there's been a communications mistake that comes out of the governor's office. So a professionally run communications organization, I, I mean, I would say, or one of the big reasons that Hogan was able to be as successful with the public. Let me um, put this to you in a somewhat complicated analogy. I think it sounds easy enough to say what the Hogan formula for success is, but it's very difficult for either political party to follow it. You don't, of course, given the the nature of of publication and the timing schedule, follow through to the uh, 2022 elections in your book because they took place after you finished turning in the manuscript. But, you know, what happened was that Larry Hogan knew that the only way a Republican was going to win following him was to nominate a moderate who would follow his playbook. So he pushed for Kelly Schultz to be the Republican Party nominee, who is one of his protégés and very much a moderate in his uh, mold. Instead, the Republican electorate nominated Dan Cox, who was uh, had the Trump stamp of approval. Uh, he's a state delegate who is a complete MAGA head. Uh, I think Larry Hogan actually called him... Uh, a QAnon whack job. Mm-hmm. And he made no attempt to do any part of the Hogan thing. He demonized the press. He wouldn't reach out to communities outside of the right-wing bubble. Um, and he lost in a huge uh, landslide to Wes Moore, who therefore becomes the first black governor of Maryland history. Yet, curiously, this same pattern was described in your book, except it was the Democrats, because they nominated a progressive, not a moderate, but a progressive in Ben Jealous, um, who flew off the handle and dropped an F-bomb on a reporter, famously, who didn't think there was any need to actually tack toward the middle and, in fact, explicitly rejected that stance. And who said, yeah, go ahead, call me a socialist. And, and, and they lost because, again, they couldn't play towards the middle. So although on the surface it seems like the Hogan prescription might be intuitive and even obvious, in practice it's very hard for parties which are so much in the thrall of their bases and their extremes to follow it. I think that's true. Um, I would, my, my only sort of like pushback with your analysis there is that I would never compare Ben Jealous to uh, Dan Cox. Uh, Fair I, I, I do not think that, and, and I, 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 I'm following the point you're making, but I think just that's to be clear. Dan Cox um, is a, was a, a first term delegate from Frederick County. And I, and one of the reasons that he won, and perhaps I think the only reason he was able to win that on primary in 2022 was he, he earned the Trump endorsement and he earned Trump's attention by p- being part of the quote unquote Trump lawyers who were defending the big lie uh, in, in 2020. That's how he got on Trump. I think Trump's radar. Um, so I have some criticism, certainly, I think, in terms of like Ben Jealous's read of the Maryland electorate. But I think Ben Jealous was just he was just a progressive and a moderate world in, in Maryland. I think that's how I would describe it. Dan Cox, on the other hand, um, uh, uh, frankly, held some positions, held some policy positions, or just just general positions that were just not factually based. Yeah, and it's interesting. That. It's interesting that the Massachusetts Republican Party chose to go the same direction uh, by nominating a MAGA candidate to succeed Charlie Baker, and then losing big time to the Democrats and giving up the giving up the, the state. 
It is, you know, it's to me, I think looking at it just from a, 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 as an outsider's perspective or somebody who has, you know, studied Maryland politics now for the better part of 10 years, uh, it is wild to me that they had a Republican governor who sustained a set, like a 65 to 70% approval rating. And then for, uh, and then Republicans washed their hands of it. And instead of voting for, the, for his sort of pick nominee, they decided to go with somebody who was, I mean, for me, the, what I knew about the Maryland electorate, um, I saw the writing on the wall immediately that the second Dan Cox got nominated, it was for me, it was always a question of how much, whether that, uh, instead of whether. So how much was he going to lose by versus whether he was going to lose? Uh, and Westmore, I think it's, I mean, it's the, the number ticks up every single day as the, the more and more ba- uh, mail-in ballots have been counted uh, in the state. And Westmore is, um, it was a Democrat that had, that, what made sure that those Hogan voters, those Hogan Democrats and Hogan independents, they came right home gladly to Westmore. And again, I think part of that has to do with Dan Cox and his, his extremism. The other thing is because Westmore is, has broad ideological appeal. Moderates like him, progressives liked him. He, uh, he earned the endorsement of the fraternal order, uh, uh, the FOP. At the same time, he earned the endorsement from many uh, labor and uh, environmental organizations. So this is something I, really broad appeal. I highly recommend his uh, autobiography, The Other Westmore, which is very much of a Baltimore story as well. As a final question then, Malia, what kind of a future does Larry Hogan have in the Republican Party, in Republican politics more generally? So this is where the good folks within the Scannon Center came in um, big time for me. I really didn't know that many people, like personally enough to, to call them up and ask them any questions about the future of the Republican Party. Um, and thankfully, your Rolodex had really helped me out. And I was able to talk to a bunch of very smart people that a lot of them who um, write for the Bulwark, who's certainly like a, um, a I would just call them a center right sort of anti-Trump publication. Uh, I, I saw that you talked to Sarah Longwell, Tim Miller. Yeah, uh, Amanda Carpenter. Mm-hmm. The, each of them, um, and Tim Carney from the Washington Examiner, he was, uh, and, as well as Matt Lewis. So I talked to a bunch of, uh, some, I think, a diverse set of voices that I think had an had a, a maybe a chance of not just dismissing Hogan outright. So I think if I would have talked to folks in like MAGA world, those types of Republicans, it wouldn't have been much of a conversation. It would have been, Larry Hogan has no future at the end, you know? So I wanted to at least talk to some folks who you know, would think about it or consider it. Um, and the idea that I, uh, that really everybody landed on was he has a primary problem that this would work in the general, that this type of Republican probably could win handedly uh, against the right Democrat in a general election. But they just, uh, it was just, everybody was like, I just don't think he can make it through the primary. Sarah Longwell talked about some of the, the really great focus group work she was doing and sort of what the, like where Republican voters are at. Tim Miller, uh, I thought this was really sort of smart. He's somebody who knows how to do opposition research. Talked about the, the first thing they're going to say about Hogan is he's not a team player. And it, was, it would make his job so easy um, as somebody who you know, formerly used to do opposition research. Jim Swift from the Bulwark made a really good point that some of the conservative media, if Hogan would make some gains in those early states, if all of a sudden uh, the Iowa Fair Circuit was really kind to the governor who was great at backslapping and, you know, his way through a county fair, that Fox News and some of the more conservative publications would come out after him, either kind of. Uh, suffocate his campaign with no coverage at all, or perhaps even, you know, some negative stories about him. And Matt Lewis, I thought was an interesting, uh, you know, he made this really interesting comparison. Uh, It's probably one of my favorite quotes. 
he said he would he would buy low on Hogan. He was he wasn't. I don't think he was bullish on him by any stretch of imagination, but would buy low because he's also I think seen Hogan on the campaign trail and seen him in person and thinks that that some of that authenticity that voters see might translate well in a more retail politics centered world of those early primary and caucus states, but mm -hmm. still buying low. You know, one of the conclusions of the autopsy report was that the party needed to separate itself uh, or even suppress uh, the power of fringe right-wing candidates uh, and even movements like the Tea Party. But Sarah Longwell and uh, Tim and a lot of other people at the Bulwark have been pretty open about the fact that the only way to actually get the Republican Party to do that would be through repeated defeats. And yet, after 2022, we've now seen MAGA defeated in three straight election cycles. So it's not impossible to think that there could be more appeal of a somewhat more traditional, business-oriented, big tent, pragmatic Republican approach. I mean, if you, uh, I think that he, the Hogan will certainly, uh, he loves the, uh, he loves the electability argument. He made it in 2014 that he was the, uh, the most electable Republican. He can, he actually can beat uh, Anthony Brown and he will make that argument again. Uh, if, he, if he decides to throw his hat in the ring uh, for, uh, to run for president again, I, listen, every governor and Senator looks in the mirror and sees a future president. So I don't think that Hogan is, um, uh, is dissimilar from a lot of other ambitious politicians. Um, I think that he's unique in at least that he is one of the only sort of high profile Republicans. If Trumpism completely implodes, he is somebody who is not touched by it at all, that he has stayed away and that makes him unique. But again, Maryland's also a very small state. Hogan's media friendly, but you have to, that's, you have to take a, you have to have a running start, I think, to do well in Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think he's certainly putting in those moves, but it's, I, I wouldn't discount it. It's a, it's a tough journey to get national recogn name recognition. And I think anybody uh, who is big in their state probably could tell you how easily it is to try and fail. Well, Malia Cromer, thank you so much for joining me today. And congratulations on your oh, new book, so uh, Blue State Republican, How Larry Hogan Won, Where Republicans Lose and Lessons for a Future GOP. Thanks again, Malia. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to the Vital Center podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcasting platform. And if you have any questions, comments, or other responses, please include them along with your rating or send us an email at contact at niskanencenter.org. Thanks as always to our technical director, Christy Eshelman, our sound engineer, Ray Ingenieri, and the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C.